We have been looking at these pictures in the book of Ezekiel on Sunday nights, pictures of attempting to build new hearts in the people. These are the ones who have been sent into exile. However, they and their descendants are going to be the ones that would have the opportunity to return as the true remnant of God. And God is using Ezekiel to explain why judgment has come, going to explain to the people why they need to get their hearts right with God and how ultimately God was going to accomplish that. Uh, And tonight in Ezekiel 21 and 22, uh, really some amazing pictures of what God is going to do. We've been noticing, though, uh, being in the depths of Ezekiel, that you have hidden gospel messages uh, that sound like as if it were the New Testament proclaimed to us. And the same uh, is happening yet again in this passage as God is going to explain the reasons for judgment and then ultimately what God was looking for and then what God was going to do about that. That'll be the framework of our lesson uh, this evening. In Ezekiel 21, uh, it opens with some some pictures and some parables, and sometimes you have uh, Ezekiel even carrying out physical imagery as to trying to communicate to the people what's about to happen. Uh, the first one is a very simple image in, in the first Uh, 17 verses, you just have this repetition about how God has a sword ready. You see part of the song in verse 8 where it says, a sword, a sword is sharpened. It is also polished, it is sharpened for slaughter, honed to flash like lightning. How can we make merry for you have despised the rod and all discipline? And it goes on to describe the sword. And, And the whole message of it is God has Pulled the sword out of its sheath. It is polished. It is sharpened. And you don't do that unless you're going to use it. That is the simple message. Is judgment is going to come against Jerusalem. Do not think that that's not going to take place. Judgment needs to happen for their sins. And yet God is going to accomplish this in one of the most unusual ways that you would probably ever, ever know. Here, God is going to explain how Nebuchadnezzar is going to choose to attack Jerusalem and how God is the one behind this. Notice the picture in verse 18 of Ezekiel 21, verse 18. The word of the Lord came to me, mortal, mark out two roads for a sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall issue from the same land and make a signpost that make it with a fork in the road leading to the city and mark out the road with the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites or to Judah and to Jerusalem, the fortified. So notice the picture. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to kind of put a fork in the road of sorts and put a sword there and put up a sign. And one fork in the road says it's going to go to the city of Rabbah in Ammon. And the other fork in the road goes to Jerusalem in Judah. So getting all set up, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to be at this symbolic fork in the road. Verse 21. For the king of Babylon stands, the parting of the way, at the fork in the two roads, to use divination. He shakes the arrows, he consults the teraphim, he inspects the liver, and into his right hand comes the lot for Jerusalem to set battering rams, to call out for slaughter, for raising the battle cry, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up ramps 
and to build siege towers. God says, here's what the king of Babylon is going to do. He's going to stand at the fork in the road and he's trying to decide, is he going to attack Ammon or is he going to attack Judah? And notice the way the king is going to determine. He is going to use pagan divination rites. That's what is consulting the liver and shaking the arrows and consulting the teraphim is he's going to inquire of all of his gods and he's going to throw the lots and he's going to cast the arrows and he's going to check the liver and do all those kinds of things. And God says, you know what? I'm going to make it read to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to use the very things that are divination practices to get him to go and attack Jerusalem and not go to Ammon first. He's coming after you. Now, I want you to think about how God is doing that here for a minute, because sometimes we have the tendency to think that God can't just use natural means or not use various events. I mean, you could imagine what a news report would look like. Well, there's Nebuchadnezzar and he's at the fork of the road and he's trying to decide if he's going to go one way or the other. And, you know, he looked at the liver and he threw the lots and he checked the arrows and it all said to go to Jerusalem. Boy, isn't that terrible that he's coming to us and not know that God was actually behind all of that. That God was the reason why Nebuchadnezzar chose to go that direction. He made it happen so that even though he doesn't think he's consulting God, God is moving the pieces so that God's will will be accomplished even though he's using false things. I think it is a powerful picture to remind us how it's not just simply God working through miracles. And now since we don't see miracles, God must not be doing anything. But works through leaders, works through events, works through world affairs, is moving pieces around and is accomplishing his purposes. Though we might sit back and go, well, I don't see exactly what God do, is doing. And God is saying, oh, I'm using things. I'm moving pieces. I'm putting things in place. Just trust me. And that's this message of, of chapter 21 is convincing the people that God is behind these things. God is the reason why Babylon is going to come to Jerusalem and why Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And I want us to, to take a moment and think about how is it possible that, that this is going to happen? Because it is something that that you have God having to emphasize to these people of why judgment must come. And chapter 22 is going to give the details. But before we read those details, I want you to see a a summary idea of the problem that is put before us. You'll notice after he gives this list of things that how, how Babylon is going to come against them in verse 24, you'll notice it says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have brought your guilt to remembrance in that your transgressions are uncovered. So that in all your deeds, your sins appear because they have come to remembrance. You shall be taken in hand. I think this is interesting how God puts this. Remember, we saw just a couple chapters earlier. God says, I'm overlooking your sins. I I, I hear you are full of sins. And yet what I'm going to do is I'm going to show mercy and grace and overlook them. But then notice the picture here is God says, but here's the problem. You keep uncovering your sins. I keep covering them over and you keep exposing them again. You keep putting them before my eyes. They're not even hidden anymore, but they are just publicly displayed for all to see. So how can I not do something because you keep displaying your sins before my eyes over and over again? 
And so that's the proclamation of verse 24. You have brought your guilt to remembrance. It's almost as if I was overlooking it and forgiving and you keep putting it back in front of my face. You keep making me see these sins. I think that's an important picture because it sounds much like our culture today. Is that the things that used to be hidden are now publicly exposed, publicly proclaimed, constantly put before the eyes of God. And there is a a, a frightful warning here of when the people are proclaiming and proud of their sins and put them before God's eyes over and over and over again. God has to act. I keep giving you mercy and covering over and you keep pulling them back out. You keep putting them before my eyes. And so this is ultimately why the sword is going to be drawn. And that's what chapter 22 goes on to describe. For the sake of time, I can't read uh, all of the beginning here of chapter 22. But I'm going to sum up that what you see here is a city full of sins. And be stunned that he is describing Jerusalem. And he says about Jerusalem in those first six verses how The city of Jerusalem is full of violence, full of bloodshed. The innocent are are dying. In verse 7, he'll say that parents are treated with contempt. In verse 8, excuse me, verse 7, orphans and widows are being wronged. In verse 8, that the people are despising the holy things of God and they are slandering to be able to shed blood. In verse 9, is full of lewdness in the city and uncovering of nakedness. In verses 10 and 11, bribery and extortion are found in verse 12. He just starts listing, here are all the sins that are going on. Any of those unusual to our world today, a lot of the same things on display, publicly displayed before God. And God is saying, I have to do something about this. And if this were not bad enough, when you jump down to verses 24 through 28, he's now going to start saying, and the leaders are also contributing to the problem. In verse 25, the princes here, they are like a roaring lion, tearing prey and devouring human lives and have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows within it. Verse 26, the priests have done violence to my teaching and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I'm profaned among them. Verse 27, the officials within it are like wolves, tearing prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. Verse 28, the prophets have smeared whitewash on on their behalf, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord, when the Lord has not spoken. And so you are just getting this stunning overflow picture of look at all the sins in Jerusalem. The people are filled with sins. The prophets are disregarding God. The priests are disregarding God. The leaders are disregarding God. Everybody has a disregard for God. Now, that's bad enough if you'd say, okay, here's a nation that's doing that. But this is supposed to be the people of God. This is the city of Jerusalem where God's name dwells. This is supposed to be the place where there is 
a light to the nations and that salvation to the ends of the earth would shine forth. This is the place where people were supposed to be different and not like the world. And not only have they become like the world, they seem to be able to be worse than the world and the things that they're doing. How did these things get to be this way? How is it that they are no longer acting like the people of God and are no longer set apart? There are a couple of pictures that are given. Back up to verse 12 of chapter 22. And look at the end of verse 12. After describing the sins of bribery, shedding blood, and extortion, and covetousness, at the end of verse 12, he just simply says, you have forgotten me. And he's going to explore that more in a couple of chapters. So we're not going to spend a lot of time there tonight. But I want you to notice one of the big overarching problems is that the people who were supposed to be the people of God have ended up forgetting God. That God is no longer their concern. He's not their priority. They don't seem to care. And the visual that is given to us is even worse in verse 18 and trying to describe what they are. You'll notice in, in verse 18, he says, mortal The house of Israel has become dross to me, all of them, silver, bronze, tin, iron, and lead. In the smelter, they have become dross. Here's God's visual. I have put all of my people into the smelter to see who's going to be refined so that I can have some pure metal come out. And he says, I threw them all in the fire and I pull open the doors and guess what I find? Nothing but a mess. Just dross. There's no purity whatsoever. It is all impurity, all bound up together. There is nothing. He's like, what a picture. I put in there silver and bronze and tin and lead and iron. Threw it all in the fire. Nothing. I've got nothing. Which is always what God is trying to tell us about why we need to stay away from sin and defilement. Why is God so concerned about sin? It's because it makes us useless to God. We're no longer able to be servants of his because we are so bound up in our sins. And here are these supposed people of God who have ruined themselves and rendered themselves useless before God because they have forgotten God, because their lives are bound up in the world, acting like the world, full of sin. And this is ultimately then setting up what God was looking for in this culture. I want you to visualize this this whole scene. It is described now for two chapters. The people are full of sins. We can't find anything good that's all dross to me. The priests, they're no good. They're they're distorting and not keeping anything holy. They don't care about my holy things. They're not separating what's holy and what's common. No regard for my holy things. The leaders, they're just as bad as the people. They're also shedding blood and they're, they're also full of extortion and taking money for greedy gain. And then he even says that the, the prophets themselves do similarly as they pretend that everything's fine, saying that they have a word from God even though they don't. I want you to notice what God wanted in the midst of this culture because this is going to be the thrust of our lesson tonight. Look at verse 30. Chapter 22, verse 30. It says there, and I sought for anyone among them who would repair the wall and stand in the breach before me on behalf of the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. What a picture. Here is a a culture and a people that is so full of sin 
And God says, I was looking around for somebody who would try to restore the people, to restore them spiritually, to restore them morally, to bring them back toward God. I was looking for somebody who would stand in that gap, stand in the breach, and be there on my behalf and and make pleadings to me on behalf of the people. I looked around to see who was willing to stand in the gap, who was willing to be the one to repair the wall. And such chilling words are given there at the end of verse 30. I couldn't find anybody. I want to ask you a question. Why do you think that God couldn't find anybody to do that? Why do you think there was nobody willing to repair the wall, to do the work of restoring the people back to God, restoring the people's hearts, Proclaiming to the people that they were in sin, that they had wandered far from God, calling out the leaders for their iniquities, calling out the prophets for being false prophets and claiming to have words from God when they didn't, calling out the priests for not maintaining the holy things of God. Why do you think that there was nobody who was willing to to do that? To me, I think there's a very easy answer to that. Because that's not easy or popular to do. At the same time that Ezekiel is making these messages, there is a prophet who is back in the land. His name's Jeremiah. And he's running around telling everybody, your prophets are false. Your priests are not maintaining the holy things and they're lying about the things of God. The leaders are wicked and we are all doomed for our sins. And you know what the people constantly did to Jeremiah the whole time? Rejected him at best And tried to kill him at worst. They're throwing him in cisterns. They're trying to lock him up. They're trying to make him quiet. They're doing everything they can to quiet him. You might remember one of the times you have Jeremiah with Baruch. Who is writing out the words of God. Only to give it to the king. And as it's being read. He's taking a knife and is cutting the pieces off. And throwing it in the fire. There is no care for the will of God in that culture. Who wants to stand up. And proclaim the words of God and get mistreated while doing it. I think that's the problem. He's looking down and saying, who's going to be the one to repair the wall? Who's going to be the one who's going to stand in the breach? And one of the reasons why you don't see people in scriptures too often doing that is because it is not popular to stand up to a culture and say, this is wrong. This is sin. This can't be done, and it's certainly not popular to pray on behalf of the people. You might remember Jeremiah starts praying on behalf of the people, and God says, don't do that because it's too late. Don't pray for these people. And Jeremiah has a heart for the people, but after all the mistreatment he goes through, he finally goes, you're right, God. You're right. They're not going to listen. They're not going to pay attention. It's because that they were going to get in a lot of trouble that no one would stand up. Now, what I want to do is talk a few messages then as we take this idea and bring it forward in terms of our time and our culture. Because as you notice this interesting window into the mind of God, where you have God saying, I was looking to see if anybody was going to stand up and do something about the situation. That it makes you wonder if God would do the same thing in our day and wonder if there is anybody who is willing to repair the walls, if there is anybody willing to stand in that gap 
and make that plea on behalf of God to the people to be willing to say, thus says the Lord, who will say what is a sin and what is not a sin, what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is immoral, even in the face of negative opinion and even hatred. I don't know if we get a sense of how much animosity and negative opinion there is when you try to really publicly say something about Christianity. I was stunned by what happened over the winter. There was There's an actress named uh, Candace Cameron Bure, and she calls herself a Christian. She decided to leave the Hallmark Channel after 10 years, moved to a new channel called The Great American Family. And she was simply asked a question about if she was going to be a part of producing LBGTQ movies. And I want you just to listen to her answer. I want you to hear how kind and simple her answer was. Her answer was this. I think that great American family will keep traditional marriage at the core. That is all she said. And she's been torn limb from limb for just saying that. I won't think we will just keep traditional marriage at the core. And she has gone through the ringer. She was just in an interview back on February 8th where she was asked about how she was handling all of this because she's been pretty well cut off from the mainstream and all of that. And she just simply said this. She wished Christians would stop apologizing for being Christian. Well said. Who's going to stand in the gap? Who's going to repair the walls? Who's going to say what is right and what is wrong? And what I want us to think about is that this is a picture that is found all throughout the scriptures of people who are willing to try to repair the wall When things were falling down around them. Noah did not just simply build a boat to save himself. You might remember we're told he is called a preacher of righteousness. You can imagine how that really looked to be that man. And stand in a world that we are told in Genesis 6 was that the thoughts and the intents of their heart were evil continually. And yet he was a preacher of righteousness, telling them of the judgment to come. He was willing to do that very thing and try to repair the wall. How about Abraham? I mean, this whole scene of God looking down and seeing if anybody would repair the wall reminds you of how Abraham had a discussion with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. What if there are 10 righteous people? Will you save them and spare them? As he's trying to repair the wall and stand in the gap. People like Moses who is trying to restore the hearts of the people with all of their idolatry while in Egypt and then coming out of Egypt and in the wilderness, preaching his messages to them even before he died there in Deuteronomy about their need to be faithful to God as they go into that land. Joshua, similarly, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. 
Are you all going to put away your idols or not? Elijah, how he takes a stand against Ahab and Jezebel. Daniel, who makes his stand, just go ahead and throw me in the lion's den. I'm I'm ready. I'm fine. I'm going to pray to God. You're not going to stop me, even though you tell me not to for 30 days. Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We will not bow down to this image. You can throw, throw us in the fire, but we are not going to bow down. John the baptizer, we just recently looked at him on Sunday morning. He lost his head because he told Herod that the marriage he was in was unlawful. The reason he died was because he was repairing the wall. He was telling them, this is wrong. This is wrong. How about Stephen? Why did he die? Except he's standing before the Jewish leaders and telling them how their sins have mounted up even today and throughout their whole history. And I want us just to think about as we look at our culture and look at our nation, that we look at our community and neighborhood and that we would not look at it in terms of disgust, but that we would look at it in terms of thinking about what can we do to repair the wall? What can we do to be an influence? What can we do to be a light? What can we do to try to move the current back the other direction? And so often I think we have a great temptation and a tendency to run away from the work. There's a great desire to look around, see the darkness, and rather than want to repair the wall, we're going to go find another wall to live by. You know, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Let me get away from it. But we need the light. We need the light to be shining. We need to be able to stand into those moments, whether it be our neighbors and community or at work or wherever we have our relationships and spheres of influence to be able to say we need to show light. And here's what God says. And here's what God wants for us as a people and as a nation. And so don't remove your light, but rather think about how you can live your life in such a way. So that you can be repairing that wall. Sometimes we only think of that in terms of like big, big ideas. But if all of us can repair the wall to one person and then another and then another and then another, great things can happen. And we must be that light and we must be that influence. Second, the picture of standing in the breach is given. What a picture. Not only repair the wall, but who will stand in the breach or stand in the gap. The idea there is fascinating. It is a picture of who was willing to stand and be the go-between between this wicked generation that we have looked at all the pictures of bloodshed and evil and pray to God on their behalf. And think about how many times that happens in the scriptures. Abraham doesn't say, well, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah are pretty bad, so you might as well go ahead and get them, God. But is interceding. And how many times does Moses intercede for Israel? How many times does, I mean, you read Moses and you want to go, Moses, just let God get him already. Just stop. I can't believe you're interceding for him again. Look how they're trying to kill you and go back to Egypt. Who wouldn't be like, okay, God, go ahead. And yet Moses is pleading on behalf of the people over and over again. You read it is Daniel and his prayer and he's pleading in chapter nine. On behalf of Jerusalem, he knows that the 70 years have expired as as Jeremiah prophesied. And he says, but we're not any better. 
And Lord, I'm praying on behalf of this wicked people that because of your glory, you'll keep your word. He's interceding on their, their behalf. Are we not amazed by Stephen? As they're stoning him, he's still interceding on behalf of those people who are casting the stones. And of course, Jesus, the very model, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Over and over again, we are being shown to be a people who will pray for the people, that we would not be angry at our culture, but plead to God, Lord, we need mercy. We need mercy. We need time for repentance. We need a time for for restoration. God, give us more time so that we can turn back to you before it's too late. Lord, we need your patience all the more. We know as a nation we are worthy of judgment. We are certainly doomed for how we have publicly exposed our sins before you. But Lord, give us more time so that we can use this freedom to try to bring more glory to you. We can be the people who are standing in the gap, that we would offer that before God and that. One more important message, though, in asking this question about who's going to repair the wall and stand in the breach. I want you to go back to chapter 21. I jumped over a line because I wanted to save it to the end. Ezekiel 21. And I want you to see one more picture of what God has in mind of what he's going to do about this. In verse 27, it says there, a ruin, a ruin, a ruin. I will make it. Such has never occurred until he comes whose right it is to him. I will give it. This is an amazing little prophecy where God is saying, I'm going to put the city in ruins. And yet he says, I'm going to put the city in ruins until he comes, whose right it is to him, I will give it. Now, there's some arguments. Well, this is probably talking about Nebuchadnezzar. And you might have a translation that even reads that way. And it talks about this, this coming one. But you will notice that God is saying, I'm going to make this place a ruin until somebody comes. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is the ruiner. And God is saying, I'm going to leave things in that desolate state until the one whose right it is to rebuild, whose right it is to restore this kingdom, whose right it is to rule as king. This kingdom is going to stay in ruins until the rightful time comes and the rightful king comes. This is the essence of why when John the baptizer jumps on the scene, he says, now's the time. The rightful one who's going to restore king and kingdom has arrived. And so you need to get ready. You need to repent because this is the one that we have been waiting for. There is this picture that God gives is that Christ is the one who has come to restore and we are participants in repairing the wall and standing in the gap. Let me show you and then we'll end. Isaiah 61. This is a passage, if you've grown up in the pews, you know very well, Jesus in Luke 4 
opens the scroll and reads this text and says, this is me and sits down. Basically, this is talking about him. He applies this directly to himself in Luke four, but listen to what it says. Isaiah 61 And in verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus quotes the majority of that section right there when he is in that synagogue reading the scriptures. But I want you just to keep reading what is included and what's happening. Even though he stops it there, they all knew what that prophecy was. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. So here's your poor in spirit, mourning over sin's people. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. The New Testament is filled with, here are God's people who are all giving God the glory. They're putting it on him and saying, look how glorious he is, and they're worshiping him. But watch what it says next. They will build up the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities. The devastations of many generations. In the same context of talking about the arrival of Christ and his glorious work and setting the captives free and drawing people to himself, there is a picture for us that his work becomes our work. Christ's redemptive work makes us workers in his kingdom so that we do what we can. To be people who repair the wall and to be a people who stand in the gap on behalf of the world. This is our mission. And I hope that you see in the darkness of the days of Ezekiel, God said, I was looking to see if somebody would do that. And when I found none, it was time for the sword. And may we be the people of God who are willing to repair the walls and stand in the gap so that more can be saved before the wrath of God comes. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this picture of your extraordinary patience. How you look to this world to see who will be interceding on behalf of the people that you look to see who would be ones who would have the courage to repair the walls. Lord, we pray that we would be those people. Lord, give us opportunities to repair the walls. Give us the chances to talk to people who are desirous to hear about you, who are lost in the dark, so that we can point the way to you. Help us, Lord, to show people how your way is so much better than what this world has to offer. Help us to have the courage to speak truth, to tell people when things are moral and immoral, sin and darkness, and when things are good and things are light. And Lord, we pray that we would have courage even in the face of a rejection because we see all throughout the scriptures, Lord, that 
your people endured all kinds of resistance and all kinds of consequences for standing in the gap and repairing the wall. Lord, give us spiritual strength. Give us courage. Give us boldness. Help us to speak the truth in love because we care for a dying world around us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts to pray for our country, to pray for our culture, to pray for our community, and to pray for our world. And Lord, we beg you for more patience and more mercy. Lord, we know we are flagrant with our sins in this country, that we openly and publicly proclaim them before your very eyes. But Lord, we know you do not want any to perish. So Lord, give us more time to teach. Give us more time to shine as lights. Give us more time to reach out before we know it's too late. In Jesus' name, amen.